Good morning. My name is Jim Stites. I am one of our student pastors here at LCF uh, for now. Um, the, literally, the Sunday night before everything got locked down, um, and our student ministry announced that um, I'm actually moving on to go pursue a license, become a licensed professional counselor, and um, basically August 2nd will be my last Sunday here at LCF. Um, here before the message, I just want to take a minute to thank you all as a congregation. It has been a joy for me, a joy that I just can't even put into words over the last five years to get to pastor here at LCF. Um, my life has been changed in radical ways as a result of knowing you all um, and seeing the way that God has transformed you. Um, this morning, we're actually going to walk through a passage of scripture that talks about um, a really spiral of despair that goes on in the story of Esther. And I've seen that happen in your lives. I've experienced that in my own life in different moments. Um, and it's been such a joy to see the sovereignty of God and the province of God sustaining us in the midst of that. Um, and even personally as well, like um, when Susan and I found out that she was pregnant and that we were going to have a son, uh, one of our best friends told us, you will never forget what it's like um, to raise a child and as part of a church and a pastor at a church in the way that your child really becomes like cared for and loved by so many at that church. And it's, a, it's an experience that I can't even put into words. Um, it's been a joy to see the way that you've cared for my wife and I and for our son um, as, he's, as he's now almost one and a half. And so thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. It has been a joy um, to, to love here and to serve here and to get to know you all um, at this church. It's a special, special place. Um, so... This morning, we're going to dive into Esther chapter 3. Um, I'm incredibly excited about this text, even though what we're going to see is it's going to feel like things are going to spiral out of control for Esther, for uh, Mordecai, and for the Jews as a whole. It's going to feel like we are on this car ride in which God has been the driver of the car, and he's currently got the thing on, on speed control, and he's fallen asleep at the wheel, and it's going to feel like we are careening off the road into this epic crash. And yet, what we're going to see is that God is sovereign throughout this entire situation. And the thing that I'm excited to unpack this morning, because in all of our lives, it's really easy to champion and to celebrate the providence of God when things are going well. Um, but when we experience that spiral of despair, when it feels like our life is careening off the road, when we go through immense suffering and trials and hardship, it's incredibly hard to cling to the providence of God and the goodness of God in the midst of our darkest moments. And so um, this morning, what I want us to see, what I want us to feel, and what I want us to know this morning is that God is good wherever we are in our journey. Whether you're at a place where maybe you're a high schooler, or maybe you're a college kid, where you're just like, life is great right now. Everything's perfect. I love my life, even though we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, like, it's so easy for me to trust in the goodness of God. Or maybe you yourself are in a place where you've felt your life spiral over the last several months, maybe the last couple of years you've been in this place of darkness. God is good. And whether you're about to enter into that season, you're going through that season now, or you've been through that season, I want us to celebrate the goodness of God and the providence of God as we look at this text. And so, so far, what we've talked about in this series, some of the theological concepts that we have walked through, is last week, Tim um, talked about the sovereignty and the providence of God. The sovereignty of God is ultimately that God exercises his power over all creation. So the sovereignty of God is God's exercise of power over all of creation. 
Basically, sovereignty, if you think about it, is God's ability to do whatever he wants. It's his ability to control um, situations. It's his ability to set his will and to make his will come about. Job, in Job 42, he states this. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Or Daniel 4.35, when talking about the providence of God, says, And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? God can do whatever he wants. That is, sorry, that is his sovereignty, is his ability to do whatever he wants. And his providence ultimately gets into his willing of things for good. For in light of his character, in light of the fact that he is loved, that God himself is good, the fact that he himself desires to uphold and care for his creation, his providence leads him to be sovereign, not only doing whatever he wants, but doing whatever he wants for the good of those who love him. And so we see this beauty of the fact that God is good and that he is ultimately powerful in working that power for the good, for his wise good and loving purposes, for his good wise and loving purposes. And so before we jump into our context and our passage, I want to pray for us this morning because um, we come into this morning in vastly different places. Some of us are coming into this morning um, in, in really rough spots. Some of us are coming into this morning in really incredible spots. And so I want to pray for us um, and for God's spirit to be with us as we look at this text this morning. Father, you are sovereignly and providentially working in this world and in this very room. As we unpack a chapter of Esther that invites us into the mystery of your providence in the midst of deep abiding pain, Father, I ask that you use this story to providentially heal areas of our hearts and wounds that have happened in our lives that have led us to distrust you and to doubt your goodness. God, I, I pray that for those in this room who haven't experienced those deep woundings, God, that you prepare their hearts and prepare their minds for times in their life that it will feel like everything changes and that things are out of control. And God, for just us as a whole, as an entire body, a body that has those who are weeping, those who are celebrating, those who are in mourning, and those who are rejoicing, God, I pray that this word and this passage cares for us and prepares us um, for ultimately eternity and putting our trust and our hope in you. Father, we love you. Thank you for this morning and thank you for this word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we've been walking through the book of Esther. We're jumping into Esther 3 today. Before that, I want to catch us up on the plot of what's happened in Esther so far. I know a lot of you probably are at lake houses or just maybe took a week off from church. And so I want to make sure we're all on the same page as far as what's going on in the plot. So Esther chapter 1, we're introduced to King Ahasuerus. Um, he's the king of Persia, this massive empire, and he has so much power and so much control, and he thinks a lot of himself. And so in chapter one, he throws a 180-day party, or 180-day party in order to celebrate his greatness, his power, his authority, and his might. And so at the end of that 180-day party, he then throws another seven-day party to keep celebrating and to keep making sure everyone knows how great and how powerful and how mighty he is. And during that seven-day party, you could imagine he's been partying for a long time. He's feeling pretty good with the wine. And he decides that he's going to have his officials go and bring his queen, Queen Vashti, to him so he can show her off to everyone that's there. 
And so he calls for her to be brought in her royal crown. By the way, note it only mentions her royal crown. And for her to come and come before him so that he can show her off. And she says, no, absolutely not. And she refuses the king's direct order. And so instead of going to her and talking to her and resolving a conflict like a married man should, um, he issues an edict that she shall never see him again and that also um, that women in his land must obey their husbands. So really good conflict management. So from here, um, the king in chapter 2, we have this place where there's a vacancy in the queen and the king feels in his um, leader, like his advisors who are really wise, feel that it's time for him to find a new queen. And so basically they implement an Old Testament version of the bachelor uh, where the king decides like he's going to have all of these women from the land brought to him who are beautiful and become a part of his harem. And there's going to be this contest to earn, not, not a rose, but they'll earn the queen, the queen spot. And so from here, what we get is this picture of um, all of these women from the land being gathered together. And now the capital, the citadel, Susa, is where the king is and where we get introduced to Mordecai. Um, Mordecai is a Jew who's living there, working in some capacity within the government. And Mordecai is there in Susa, and his adopted daughter, um, who's his cousin's daughter, um, Esther, is living with him, and she is beautiful. And so she is adopted and brought into that harem of women. And God has this special favor on her um, as being a Jew. And, and while she's in that harem, she rises to a place of prominence pretty quickly. And then when it's time for her to come before the king, she wins the king's favor. She gets a rose. She becomes queen. And so chapter 2, we see Esther in this place of incredible power. And things are really looking up. Um, and things are looking good for the Jews. And then it gets even better at the end of chapter 2. Mordecai is there um, in, in his like, royal position or in his position within the government. And he overhears this plot of two of the king's servants who are plotting to kill the king. And he, he hears this plot, and he has the perfect route to be able to inform the king. And so he tells Esther, and then Esther lets the king know that there are these two men who are wanting to kill you. And so the king does an investigation, finds out, yes, this is indeed happening, and those two men are sent to the gallows, they're hung, and the king's life is saved. And one thing about kings that are there in Persia is we've already seen the way that he is just an amoral man. He uses his power in wicked ways. Um, he is swift in dealing out vengeance. Um, but one thing about Persian kings as well is that they're often very swift in, in giving incredible rewards for those who are loyal to them and those who serve them. And so going into chapter 3, we're in this place of expecting Mordecai to be rewarded in this massive way for saving the king's life. And so with that as a background, we're going to look at Esther chapter 3. So Esther chapter 3, all of that is our background to get into what we're going to see here. So Esther chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read all of chapter 3 and one verse into chapter 4. So after all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. And so stop. I'm going to kind of do this tour guide thing where I explain what's going on as we walk through it. And so what we're seeing here is this, this honestly, this tension of, wait, shouldn't Mordecai be the one who gets promoted? Shouldn't he be the one who is then put into the king's top place for saving the king's life? 
Instead, it's this sharp trajectory, this sharp twist away from where we thought the story was heading and into, it's the starting step of this spiral of despair. But let's keep going. So Esther chapter three, verse two. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down and he would not pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day, and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated, since he, Mordecai, had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. So let's take a stop here. Let's, let's pause. First off, let's think about Mordecai in this moment. So he's been passed up for this promotion. And instead of him being put in, in the king's right hand in this place of power, one of his bitter enemies, we'll talk about why, has now been placed in this position of power. And so Mordecai, for whatever his reason, whether um, it's an ethnic tension that's there, whether it's a religious uh, response, Mordecai will not bow. He will not bow down and pay homage to Haman. He refuses to do so. And so Haman finds out from, his, from Mordecai's um, fellow like people in the government that there's this man who's disrespecting you, who will not pay homage to you. And Haman's character is one in which he is enraged. He's furious that someone would disrespect him and not bow down to him. And then on top of that, he finds out that, he, that this man, that Mordecai, is a Jew. And now here's why that matters. If you look back at verse 1, we see that Haman is the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Most of you, if you're like Kurt Huber, hear the word Agagite, and you're like, is that the one that hangs from the ceiling? Uh, no, um, Agagite is actually a son of King Agag. It's a descendant of King Agag. And for most of you, you have no idea what that means. In my research, for me, I was like, I think I've heard of him. Um, when you look back at the book of 1 Samuel, you find out that King Agag is the ruler of the Amalekites. And basically, the Amalekites have a history of tension between the Jews. When the Jews are freed from captivity all the way back in Exodus, when they come out of captivity and they enter into the desert, there's this, this scene where they actually fight the Amalekites. And, and it's actually this really powerful scene where Moses is holding up um, his, his staff. Um, and so most of you probably have seen that story, hear that story, that's the Amalekites. Fast forward to 1 Samuel 15, and this, this tension between these two people groups is brought out yet again where God commands King Saul to wipe out, to destroy, to eliminate all of the Amalekites. And Saul says he's going to do it, and he, he evidently does a lot of it. But from there, Samuel comes to Saul and he's like, hey, why didn't you wipe out all the Amalekites? And Saul's like, I did. And Samuel's like, well, why do I hear the sound of goats? And why do I see the king alive? Like, and basically, that's the moment in Saul's story where Saul is actually 
disowned as king and begins to have his downfall. And God then puts David in charge as king after that. And so we see in that moment where Saul disobeys the command of God, he leaves King Agag and some of his descendants alive. Samuel actually comes in and finishes the job with Agag in this really violent way. Um, You can look at it in 1 Samuel 15. Um, But we get this picture that there is this rivalry, this anger, this tension, this warring between the Amalekites, the the descendants of King Agag, and the Jews. And so we find out from that context that Haman hates Mordecai, despises Mordecai, and has this hatred that's built up literally over generations and over centuries towards Mordecai and his people. And so when Haman comes to power, that's part of what's going on in the context of why Mordecai will not bow. So From here, Mordecai's bitter rival, his enemy, is in this position of power and longing for the destruction of all of the Jews. And so, let's pick back up with what's going to happen. So in verse 7, in the first month, the month of Nisan, which on our calendar is March, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the pur, that is, the lot, was cast before Haman for each day in each month. And it fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar, which is February in our calendar. Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's law. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up, authorizing their destruction and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. The king removed his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Then the king told Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with as you see fit. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the royal signet ring. So we'll stop here. So from here, King Ahasuerus gives Haman his full authority to eradicate, to wipe out, to have this final solution for the Jews, to eliminate them from his kingdom. And so you could imagine what it must be like for Mordecai in this moment to see just this spiral of despair. Losing this promotion, bitter enemy, from there he's brought out as being someone who's not paying honor, and from there his life is threatened and all of his people's life are threatened as a result. This bitter spiral of despair, this dark night of his soul is something he's going through. And in verse 13, we see that letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, to kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. So 11 months from now, there's going to be this massive genocide of the Jewish people. Verse 14, a copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the peoples so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink 
while the city of Susa was in confusion. When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city, and cried loudly and bitterly. In this picture, we get this terrifying reality at the end that what the king has commanded is for the destruction of the Jews. And Mordecai is dealing with the terror, the fear, the regret, the guilt, all that that is weighing him down as he is despairing. And then we get this picture of Haman and the king getting drunk to celebrate a long day's work. And so we have this picture of despair. We have this picture of darkness. We have this picture of this spiral of things running out of control. And so today, what we're going to do is I want us to to talk about three different warnings when it comes to God's providence that we can draw out of the story. Three warnings in in ways in which we can misunderstand his providence. Um, And then we're also going to look at three encouragements that come to us in light of God's providence. So we're going to look at three warnings when it comes to God's providence and three encouragements that come out of God's providence that we can draw from the story. And so Our first warning when it comes to providence is that God's providence does not, in no way, does it downplay our pain. When we look at Mordecai, when we look at the way that he's grieving, the way that he's mourning, the way that he is in this dark night of his soul, we see a man who is wounded, who is hurt, who is fearful, who's in despair, and there's nothing in the text that would lead us to, to say, hey man, stop it. It's okay, God's in control. There's, you, you don't have the right to cry. You don't have the right to be bitter. You don't have the right to be sad. No, there's nothing in the story, and that's not something that, that we find in Scripture. God's providence does not minimize our pain. Even in the book of Job, I really think Mordecai in this moment of despair has to relate to Job. Job's one of the first books um, that was written in in our canon of scripture. And Job's actually a story about this man who loses everything. Loses everything. And it's this question of, is God good? And is he present in the midst of his suffering? In Job chapter 3, Job responds with so much pain and so much loss in his life that I think Mordecai would relate to this. Job says, let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Followers of Christ, followers of Jesus, we know at different points in our life what it's like to go through this dark night of the soul. And if you haven't been through a dark night of the soul, and maybe that's a season of pain in which you're in despair, when something's happened in your life that your life has been turned upside down like Mordecai's or like Job's, in those seasons of despair, it's okay. It's good to mourn and to grieve and to be sad. God's word encourages us to do so. God's providence in no way downplays our pain or tells us to suck it up or to get over it or that we don't need to be sad or that grief is not a normal part of the experience of following God. Genuine grief and sorrow are a part of the life of following Christ. And there's certain grief that takes years to work through, certain pain that we will actually maybe never even experience healing for in this world, but that Jesus himself will wipe away the tears from that pain when we get to heaven. There is pain in this world that takes time and that it takes God's grace to heal. He doesn't 
downplay our pain or our grief. And one of the, the challenges for us is there's times in our life where we are near someone who's going through deep grief, who's going through deep pain, and out of our discomfort, we want to fix it. We want to see them healed right away. We don't want to give time for God's healing to happen in their life. And so we try to give trite scripture that we, that we take a little bit out of context to say and invalidate their pain. And we try to say, it's not okay for you to be in pain. Like, God is good. Don't be in pain. But the reality is no. Like, what you're really saying in that moment is you're causing more pain for them. And what you're saying is, if only you had a faith like mine, you wouldn't be, in, you wouldn't be hurting right now. Take my faith on and, and you'll be fine. But the reality is God's providence, his goodness, his plan does not eliminate our pain. It actually heals our pain. And he gives us time to heal. He gives Mordecai time to heal as well. So God's providence does not downplay pain. Our second warning when it comes to this passage is that providence does not equal prosperity. Providence does not equal prosperity. In our teaching team meeting with um, our pastors, Libby Skillman stated this, and I was like, Libby, you're going on the screen. You're getting quoted. Um, That's also nowhere on the internet. So that is like a Libby Skillman original. I Googled it, and she's the one who came up with that. Um, Providence does not equal prosperity. God is not your sovereign Siri. God is guiding his creation for his intended purposes for it. And as Romans 8.28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. As we've talked about in previous weeks, God is providentially working in all things, and he uses the mundane moments of life to move forward his purposes. Note, that's his purposes, not our convenience, not our prosperity. It's his purposes that he's moving forward where we stray into thinking in terms of the prosperity gospel is when we stray into thinking that God is all about us. He's all about our purposes. He's all about me being powerful, me being happy, me being wealthy, me being healthy, uh, having a fulfilling career, having comfort and convenience. We think that, God, because I've done good for you, you are sovereign, you have all authority, and somehow my doing good for you now manipulates you and kind of makes you indebted to me so that you have to give me the blessings that I want in this life. And so when we come upon a season where we experience the loss of a job, injuries, pain, loneliness, gossip, whatever it might be, when we go through those dark seasons like Mordecai, we assume, based on our lived experience and experiencing hurt, that God must not be good that he must not care, and that he must not be working in this world because we've associated, in many ways, God's providence with our prosperity and with our ease in life. We associate his prosperity, or his providence with our prosperity. But the reality is, the life of following Christ is the life of following a crucified Savior. Christ did not live a life of prosperity and ease and comfort. Christ lived a life of denial. He lived a life of of suffering. And ultimately, he died upon the cross. And he calls us to a life of denial, a life of suffering, a life of giving and dying to our desires every day, and a life of crucifying them and taking up our cross so that we can follow him. Suffering and pain are a part of the life of Christ. Our, um, Our prosperity when it comes to ease, comfort, blessings, as far as material blessings, those are not a given in life. Um, And those are ultimately not even what's best for us. God loves us too much to give us a life of full ease um, 
and that's going to be part of our, one of our points here too, is what is his purpose for sending suffering? So we are not to downplay um, suffering in the midst of God's providence. We are not to also see God's providence as the means for our prosperity. And then the last thing, that, warning that I want us to see from this text today is that earthly suffering does not equal God's judgment. Earthly suffering does not equal God's, God's judgment. If you look back in our story so far, um, Mordecai and Esther have done some things that are questionable. They've done some things where they've blended in um, to the culture, where they've tried to not stand out um, as Jews. And, and honestly, when you think about in terms of their living in this foreign culture um, as, as Jews, they are not keeping kosher. There are so many different laws of God that they are not following in this moment. But there's literally nothing in the story that leads us to think that this spiral of despair, that this suffering is at all a result of, of the times in their lives where they've stumbled, where they've, where they've disobeyed God, or where they have not been obedient. Um, there's nothing in the story that makes us think that they're suffering um, as a punishment. Yet in our lives, I think we wrestle with this idea that could an innocent person suffer? And backing up to Job, um, one of the most powerful parts of the book of Job is ultimately that when his friends come, they just cannot believe that God would allow an innocent man to suffer, someone who God is not punishing for his sin um, and God is using this punishment to lead him to repentance. No, they can't understand that God would let someone who's innocent suffer. And so his friends come in and, and they spend a few days just listening to him um, be sad and, and express his hurt. And from there, they kind of turn the guns on Job and they go from being his friends to being his accusers. They begin to look in his life and try to ask him and help him figure out, what have you done to deserve the suffering that you've come about? And, and what's powerful about the book of Job is that you see in it over and over this reminder that Job is not suffering as a punishment. This suffering actually has a different purpose. It is not punitive in, in its giving. And so what's powerful for us to think about in this, in this situation is that we in our own lives, when, when we suffer incredible hardships, when we come across death of a loved one, when we come across um, just re rebellion of, of kids that we love, when we come across um, all sorts of hardship in our lives, that's not coming into our life as a punishment for us from God. And we cannot attribute when we see that hardship and that pain and that suffering that is just inexplicable to being someone else's sin that God is punishing. It's the height of arrogance to think that we can attribute and understand in our finite mind, ultimately, why someone is going through hardship and suffering in their life. And to think that they deserve it is the heart of arrogance. We have to be slow and gracious in understanding God's purposes for suffering and that it is ultimately not rooted in God's punishment here and now. For Christians, Jesus bore your punishment on the cross. You can with certainty absolutely know that God has no reason to punish you. Your sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for by Jesus. There is no hostility. There is no animosity. You are brought into perfect relationship with God by your faith in Christ. And so there is no punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no hostility that's there. And for those who aren't in Christ, our longing is for them to know Jesus, to allow for him to be the one who pays their punishment their penalty, for them to put their faith and their trust in him. And God, by his grace, delays punishment until after death. And so we have this hope as followers of Christ that suffering is not a punishment from God. 
Okay, so those were our three like warnings, is that God's providence does not minimize our pain, it does not dismiss it. God's providence is also not at all about our prosperity when it comes to earthly reward. And God's providence is not, in, in, in when we suffer, it's ultimately not about a punishment for our sin. Jesus has been punished on our behalf. So, Three encouragements from God's providence for us to to conclude with. What are three ways that we can be deeply encouraged from this story? The first one is one of God's purposes when it comes to suffering is that God's providence is ultimately bringing us to maturity. God in his providence is bringing us to maturity. And one of the ways he does that is through suffering. God longs to raise up a group of people who can experience suffering, who can go through hardship, who can have their world flipped upside down and run to him and trust him in the midst of that. And sadly, too often in the capital C church, people are unprepared for the pain and the hardship and the struggle in life. We see in the book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, it's a great book by a guy named Peter Scazzaro. He talks about the season of the dark night of our soul and the way in which in our life suffering comes and it can often lead people to just be stuck to wrestle with, is God still good in the midst of what I'm going through? And he specifically talks about Judas in his own life and some of his dark nights, the season of darkness that Judas went through and the way that Judas responds. And Peter Scazzaro says, Judas, or Jesus called the 12 disciples to a journey that would change their lives forever. Judas, however, grew disillusioned and got stuck along the way. He couldn't imagine what Jesus was up to, especially in surrendering himself to the authorities to be crucified. He could not see how anything good could emerge out of the disintegration of their powerful Palestinian ministry that was helping so many people. Jesus's plan offended him. That's his quote. And so in the midst of Judas's dark night of the soul, Judas rejected Jesus. He wasn't prepared for the suffering and for, for Christ's ultimate crucifixion and feeling like everything had fallen apart. He abandoned Christ in the midst of that. And so part of why I think it's so important for us to talk about suffering to whether, whether you're a teen who hasn't been through any of that yet or a college student or even young adults, like suffering is coming in your life. Suffering is coming and we must see that one of God's purposes for it is to bring us to maturity in Christ. James chapter 1, verse 2, James is a pastor. He's writing to care for his people, and he's striving to prepare them for suffering, to help them see its purposes. And in James chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Consider it a joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. James longs to encourage his readers to trust God in the midst of their suffering, to know that God is using their suffering in order to refine their character and lead them in obedience to Christ. Suffering in a way that almost nothing else can, can refine our hearts, can purify our hearts of things like pride and gluttony, sloth and envy. Suffering is a way in which God purges our selfish desires and our rebellious heart and creates in us a maturity that only can come through deep pain. One of God's powerful tools of transformation is actually suffering. And for me, when I think back to the five years that I've been here, 
Um, as I've gotten to know so many of you, there are so many of you in our congregation who I've gotten to know, and, and I see this beauty and this strength in, in your relationship with Christ. And as I've gotten to know you um, and learn your story, I can see, oh, it's because you've suffered in these massive ways. God has used that suffering to bring maturity in your life. He has transformed your character and your relationship with him through difficult times. In almost every person's life, when you meet this mature believer who you long to imitate their faith, there's a story of suffering there. And to know that also there's so many of you who I've walked through so much with and our staff has walked through with and in small groups have been walking through with that God is currently in the process of building maturity in your life through suffering. And it's a beautiful thing, despite how incredibly painful those times can be. God uses suffering. He uses these, these dark nights, these dark seasons of our soul to transform us and to build maturity into believers. The second encouragement that comes from um, understanding God's providence in the midst of dark nights of the soul is that we have hope. Understanding God's providence brings hope to believers. Think about the fact that in this account, the very most powerful man in all of Syria, um, that he, in his, in, his, in his governance and in his leadership, sorry, of Persia, um, that he is in this place of issuing a decree to wipe out all the Jews. You think that he has ultimate authority. You think that he has ultimate power. But the reality is God himself does. God himself is working, and God himself has a plan in the midst of this incredibly dark chapter of the book of Esther. There's hope to be had because as we read chapter three, just like at the beginning of Genesis three, it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. And even the suffering and the pain that you may be going through in your own life right now is not the end of your story either. The beautiful thing is in scripture, we actually get a picture of the end of the story. If you look at Revelation chapter 19, um, this this. Spring, I had the joy of walking through with our high schoolers the book of Revelation. And as we went by chapter by chapter by chapter through the book of Revelation, over and over and over again, as you get to the middle of the book, there's just like horrible, horrible situation after horrible situation. There are these just incredible details about the death and destruction and about how bleak things look here on the earth. And part of what God is doing is you just get this cycle of, of destruction in the book of Revelation is that it's making you see, despite everything that's going on, Jesus is still in control. He still has authority, that there is still a finality to what's going on and that there is hope in the midst of darkness. And so in Revelation chapter 19, you get this picture, this, this beautiful highlight in the book of Jesus entering into the story and declaring himself King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And in it, I'll read you a section from Revelation 19. It says, then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its rider is called faithful and true and with justice he judges and makes war. And it goes on to say, and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of of lords. There is hope no matter the suffering that you're going through, no matter the circumstances, because our story is not yet completed on this earth, but Jesus's work on the cross has been completed and he is ultimately sovereign. He is ultimately in control and from his providence, he is allowing for us to go through suffering, to redeem and to heal and to bring us closer to him and to follow him. 
There is hope because Christ lives, because he reigns, and because he rules. And so in the midst of our suffering, there is still hope. There is still joy, and there is still the ability to witness and to proclaim who Jesus is because he is ruling, and he is reigning, and he is ultimately in control of everything that we're going through. He's defeated death, and he is coming back. And now that gives us hope in the midst of whatever dark night or dark season of our soul we are going through. And so our third point, and worship team, you guys can come back up. When it comes to encouragements from God's providence is that God's providence brings healing. God's providence brings healing. And my first warning was ultimately that God's providence doesn't minimize or dismiss our pain. And, and in that, I think worship is one of the most beautiful ways that God has providentially anointed us to be able to be healed in the midst of our pain. And for me, over the last five years, um, the, the song, King of My Heart, which has this line in it that we just repeat, God, you are good, you are good, you are good. We have sang for years here now. And as we've sang that, that song, as a pastor in this congregation, there's times where I'll have come from a funeral that week and we sing, God, you are good. Or I'll be caring for someone in the midst of them experiencing betrayal from a close friend, or I'll be caring for a family um, that's going through um, all sorts of different things in their lives, whether it's losing a job or whether it's being in a place of, of marital issues within, within a relationship, whatever it is. Um, we have so many things that are going on in our lives. And there's times where I'd, after my son was born, I'd be holding him and just praising God and saying, God, you are good. And I'd look around and I'd be thinking about the stories in this congregation of people going through infertility and the hurt that they're experiencing. And in the midst of that, it was almost like the song and those lyrics were sometimes like haunting me in the moment of like, God, how could you be good in the midst of giving blessings in some circumstances and not giving huge blessings in others and having such pain and such loss and hurt here in this congregation? And what's beautiful is over time of singing that song and just declaring, God, you are good, there is a healing and there is a peace of trusting God in the midst of so many different seasons. In the midst of seasons where things are going incredibly well and in seasons of utter pain. God is good. God is good. He is here. He is healing. Like I said earlier, there are some wounds that only Jesus will wipe away the tear from. And there are some wounds that God in his goodness will heal here and now. And so all the while, my call to you and our call from Scripture is ultimately draw near to God. Trust Him in the midst of His providence. There is a reason for the things that you're going through. And on this side of heaven, we may never see that or know that, but He is good nonetheless. He is good nonetheless. And so if you'll stand, um, we'll enter into a time of praise and a time of singing about the character of God.